0: the same churches and same people that are pursuing holiness uh, and obedience to God, but often the case, uh, often that's not the case. Often uh, we're about our doctrine, but maybe how we live is not that important. We're about the mission, but our own personal holiness uh, is not that big of a priority. Um, John is here... uh, Combating the Gnostic teaching, we talked about the Gnostics uh, a few times, false teachers. And they were teaching something of the sense of um, there's a moral permissiveness. um, That because the body's bad, it doesn't really matter what you do with the body. It's about what you know. You know, Gnostic comes from gnosis or knowledge. So, know the right things or have the right experience, some kind of mystical experience. Those are what's really important. But how you live with this old body, what you do, it's not that really important. Holiness was not a premium among the Gnostics. And so John writes, as you heard these things, really interesting dialogue. It's, it's all these great things that are true about, about a God and about us, and then there's all these sharp challenges about if, you've sin- if you're sinning and keep on sinning, you're of the devil, right? It's these back and forth kind of threaded together. Um, for us, it might be a little different than the Gnostic teaching, but we certainly see moral permissiveness in our day, Right? Um, churches for us religious people often we focus on the externals Uh, maybe how we look or how we appear or what we can't do we can't do this out that we can't do that Um, but we may not be so quick to care about our own hearts or um, our private sins or um, you know Jerry Bridges calls the respectable sins right the things that seem kind of small and minor we're worried about how we look but not so much about personal holiness the non-Christian world um, sees the Bible's moral restrictions as, as repressive, right? I mean, our, our, our bodily appetites are natural. You know, to stop them is some sort of you know, Freudian, oppressive you know, repression of who we're meant to be in all its fullness, right? We're supposed to be out there and live it up and do what we want to do, um, and the Bible c- strongly critiques That mentality, the idea that sort of love wins. If we love, it doesn't really matter how we live or what we do. um, It's really not all that important. Well, John is going to tell us uh, that holiness and and moral uh, responsibility or accountability to God is really important. It is a fruit or an evidence that we belong to God. And so, we're very different than the first century and the Gnostics, and yet, um, you know your heart, right? I mean, all of us resist holiness, right? It, it, at our best, we're just lazy in pursuing the Lord. At, at our worst, we're, well, we're, we're apathetic, or we're indifferent, or we're, we're just rebellious. We know the good we ought to do, and yet, we don't really want to do it. We don't want to do what God's Word tells us to do. John's going to argue here in scripture um, that sin and continual sin has no place in the life of the believer. He's going to say it stronger than I could say it. Um, He's arguing that it's inconceivable to say we belong to Jesus and yet we continue in this way of sin. He wants our holiness and that shouldn't shock us. But the beauty of this passage, and what we're going to look at, is how he motivates us. We all agree, right? Christians, we shouldn't be sinning. We shouldn't love sin. We agree with that? We're on the same page. John says that very strongly. But the good thing about it, the beauty of it, is how he's going to motivate the audience to get there. And that's what we're going to look at today. How do we motivate to holiness? A couple of of points here. First, uh, number one, we're motivated to holiness by the love... Of the Father, look at uh, chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know Him is it did not it does not know us; it did not know Him, beloved. We are God's children now. What we'll be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He does appear, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is holy. Uh, it's kind of a raw translation. There. It says, see what kind of love. It's like, behold, what an extraordinary love. Like the love of the Father is so, um, uh, it's so exotic and uh, mysterious. Uh, Lewis says, it's like a love from a far country that, that, that we, we long for but we don't know. But it's true for us that his love, the Father's love, is for us. It's deep. It's massive. It's more than we can imagine. And that love is a love that is so strong it it overwhelms us in a way that brings change. We're motivated to live differently because of this great love. I'm going to show you a video clip. Mac, would you get that ready? Um, this is from the movie Blood Diamond. Some of you have seen that movie. Great movie. You've probably seen this clip. Um, but uh, there's an African in there. It's Solomon Vandy and uh, his son Dia are in the scene. And then there's uh, Danny Archer, who's Leonardo DiCaprio's there. And, and uh, this is the Civil War in Sierra Leone. And there's this, uh, they're looking for these diamonds. Um, but Solomon's son um, has become a child soldier, right? He's been captured and been forced into it. And so there's this interaction um, they have here. Can you go ahead and cue it up,
1: Dia? What are you doing, Dia? Yang Bei, Yang what are you doing? the Avanti of the Proud mende tribe. You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister. And- and did you do, baby? The cows wait for you. Anbawu. The wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things. But you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you, and you will come home with me and be my son again.
0: Again, uh, look at that. Wow, that was amazing. amazing. Um, the son is in rebellion, right? He, he's been captured. He's in this army. He's fighting for this rebel group. Uh, what's, what's amazing is, he, the, you know, his, his uh, father there, uh, Solomon, is, is caught with a gun. And, and, and they're, they're in the, the eye of the, of the, of the pistol. Um, how does he talk his son out of it? He, he doesn't use force. He doesn't use coercion. He doesn't shame him, right? He doesn't uh, guilt him. What does he do? He reminds him of who he is. He reminds him of his tribe. He reminds him of, uh, that he loves soccer and plantains, and he, uh, the wild dog waits for him. <laughs> he, re- he reminds him that he is his father, and that he loves him, and that you are my son, and you will come home, and you will live with me and your mother. We await you coming home. And what does it do to the little boy? What's what's down his face, right? What's down our faces? (laughs) Right? The tears come. Tears. It it was his love. It was reminding him that he is his child. This is who you are and whom you belong to that motivated the gun down, right? The resistance down. Um, The rebellion down. And and that's, that's true of us. That's the way... he. He uses strong language about us not sinning, but he says, see what kind of love the Father has. It's like, it's a, you are children of God. And he doesn't just say it as so, some kind of theoretical thing. I'm going to give you a label, children of God. It says, this is who you are. So we are. He names it specifically. I remember when uh, we, ha- we got Josiah and... Um, you know, we had him for seven or eight months, and we called him our son, and we loved him. Um, but it wasn't until November of last year that, that the judge, we went before the judge, and we got the paperwork in, and then we got the certificate, right, that said, like, this is his name, Nelson is his last name, that he belongs to us, that he is my son, and Katie's son. Um, that's, what, uh, that's what John's doing here. Um, he's telling them, grounding uh, the people of God in the reality of the Father's love. But he's got a reason for it. He's not just saying great things. He's saying it to motivate them to obedience and to holiness. Verse 2 and 3. Beloved, you are God's children now, and what you will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And we see his goodness and his holiness. Instantly as his children we're going to be just like our father. We're going to be morally pure and righteous. But we aren't there yet. But the implication is in verse 3. Everyone who who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So, we're not there yet, but because this is true about who we are, we are his children. We now purify ourselves. We seek to sanctify ourselves now because that's going to be the reality. It is the reality that we belong to him. It's one day the reality that we'll be perfect in holiness. And therefore, because of that, we pursue holiness. We pursue where we're headed. Do you know? Um, the lavish love of God in such a way that it moves you to holiness, that it moves you to say, you know, I've been, I've been flirting with this sin and this struggle for so long. I've been keeping it in the dark or in hiding. But if this kind of love is true, if he has spared no expense to show me his love, then how can I continue to live in this way? C.S. Lewis says that, uh, you know the quote, we're all half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You see what John's doing? He's not saying you guys are worthless, get your act together, like you are Pathetic. He's not your he's not your high school football coach, you know. (laughs) Come on, Nelson, you're terrible. (laughs) Right? He says, You know how you know how much love he has? Can't we can't live this way. Can't live this. That's the first motivation. It's the love of the Father. Second way he motivates us is uh, it's by the victory of, of Jesus, victory of the Son. Look at verses four to eight. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Man, there is so much there. Do you see the problem in verse 4? It's that sin is lawlessness. It's more. Sin is more than lawlessness. It's more than breaking the law. It's breaking the Father's heart, right? But it's at least that. It's here's the commands. Here's what we're to do. And we've said, you know, I, I don't really care. We, we see sin, and we said this a few weeks ago, is like, Oh, I had a really bad day, or I just made a mistake. Or we see sin, it it may be as a violation of someone else. I sinned against Ryan, and I feel bad about that. What he's saying is sin is a violation of God's law. It is first against God. Our sin is against Him, that we are lawless, that we are rebels against His authority it's it's moral, you know, anarchy, it's treason. It's it, we we're, we're against him. We're 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 trying to create a coup. Do you think about your sin that way or do you think well, you know, probably shouldn't have watched that. I probably shouldn't have said that. I probably should have that we're actually in our hearts as a rebellious force. The good news. That's why he came. He didn't come because we got it all together and we're great people. Why would he need to come if we got it all together and we're great people, right? He came, verse 5, in order to take away our sins. Sin is lawlessness. That's us. He came to take away our sins. Um, Next part says, in him there is no sin. Part of the defeat of sin for Jesus is that he was sinless. If we are lawbreakers... And the law required obedience. What did Jesus do? Jesus kept the law. Jesus obeyed. He fulfilled the commandments. He did everything that God told us to do as human beings and we failed to do. Jesus kept the law. He was the law keeper for us. That's His righteousness. And also, He came to take away our sin. How did He do that? It's by the cross, right? At the cross and the death and resurrection, He removed our sin from us. He he cleaned, He cleansed us. And so Jesus is the law keeper. The law requires obedience. He did that. And if you can't be obedient, it requires death. And He did that. He did both the the positive and the negative aspects of the law. the, The passive and active obedience of Christ, He has done for us to atone for sins. Does that motivate you in your battle with sin? That's John's argument. Does it motivate you? Notice what else he did. He took away our sins, but also verse 8, it says it plainly, what, what the Son has done. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, why did Jesus come? Was to destroy the works of the devil. So he appeared to take away sin, and he appeared to crush the devil. Christus victor. Christ the victor to destroy the enemy, the darkened forces. See, those that are sinning are of the devil. So it's like, that's, that's not who we are. We don't belong to the devil. We, we can't live it that way. That's not, that's not our father. That's not who we are. That, it was once our father, but now it's not. So we can't. We've got to put the gun down. We've got to live in consistently... But when we sin, we 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 reveal that 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 you know the enemy is gaining ground. You know, he's trying to recapture territory that's been won in the battle. A a more literal translation of this uh, to destroy the works of the devil would be to loosen the bondage of the devil. It's the verb to loosen. So he came to to loosen the bonds. And the shackles of sin on our life. So holiness is not a secondary thing. like It's not that big a deal. He came to bring us, to make us free. To, to emancipate us. Uh, some of you uh, probably heard of Juneteenth uh, last month. Probably for the first time. It, it, things that many of African Americans have been celebrating for years. Uh, June 19th, uh, 1865 was the day that the, the, the Civil War was over. And yet, uh, it didn't make it all the way down to Texas for for probably a number of reasons. But the Union uh, general came into Galveston and he announced to all the slaves that you are free. You are free men. You are no longer in bondage and shackles. You are no longer owned and possessed by another person. You are free. That's what Jesus has done for us. And even far greater. He says he came... To loosen the bondage of the evil one, the devil, over us. To free us. To make us free. Again, John tells us those things. He tells us that he came to take away sin. He tells us that he came to remove the bondage for what purpose. So that we would not sin. So that we would grow. Look at the verses between verse 4 and 8. He says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Apparently, part of the Gnostic lie was that it didn't matter how you live. You can conduct your life however you want. It doesn't matter what you do. It's about what you know. And here he says, he, he bookends it, right? It's like a good essay or something. He tells you on the front end, this is why he came... Let me tell you the the, the result, and this is why he came. He sandwiches it together. He came to take away sin. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Why? Because that's not the way we're supposed to live in sin. We're supposed to be free. Sin is not the way for those who belong to Jesus. The devil is not our father. Now, the idea is not, it's strong language, but the idea is not that we never sin, right? We said in chapter 1, remember chapter 1, some of us that were here, says that if we say we have no sin, what? We're a liar, and the truth is not in us. So there's an assumption we're going to sin, but we're talking about now, what trajectory are we on? John, the, the book, this, these letters are very black and white in some way. It's not about perfection, but it's like which path? It's like Proverbs. Are you going down this path of righteousness? Or are you going down this path that leads to destruction? This path of your father? The Lord and what Jesus has done or this path to the devil. Which way are we pursuing? And I want to motivate you by telling you what Jesus has done for you. To belong to Jesus and uh, continue in this way is, 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 is in, it's, it's not impossible, but it's, it's incongruent. It's, in, uh, you know, it's uh, incompatible. John Owen, that famous Puritan, said, Did Christ die and sin still live? Like, they, you know, what's it? it's a non-sequitur. It doesn't match, is what he's saying. Does that move you? Does that move you? Does that give you a renewed sense of fighting for this, for purity and holiness? We don't talk about this enough. D- do we like, okay, that's, that's cool, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to do better. Are we like, remember Peter? Peter, like, uh, denied Jesus three times. But then after the resurrection, you know, Jesus comes to him in the boat. He's, Peter's in the boat. Remember what Peter does? Do you remember this? Like, he sees Jesus, and he just, I mean, they're, they're going to try to get the boat over there, and Peter's like, I don't have time for that. And he just dives in, and he's just like, I got to get to Jesus. Right. That's, what, that's what it's meant to do. To understand what Jesus has done is meant to create in us this sense of, like, Yes, I want to be with him. And I want to rid sin of my life, of possessing me of bondage. There's a third uh third motivator, the father's love, um, the son, the victory. You can kind of guess what the third one might be. This is one of those preacher things where you don't want it, you try not to make it work, but it just works, you know. So you get the father, you got the son, the spirit's presence. I mean, it's like. It's like if you've ever been at Christmas and, you, and you, you get presents and you're like, I got another present? And you're like, I got another? Man, this is embarrassing. There's so many presents here. It's kind of what reading the scriptures like if you belong to Jesus. Like, I get more? Yeah, we get more. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So there you go. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. It says in verse 29 of chapter 2, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We're born of God. How are we born of God in Scripture? Remember Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John, John's gospel? He says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, how am I going to go back into my mother's womb? That's not going to happen. And he says, no, you've got to be born of what? Of water and the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. It's the Spirit that gives us birth and new life. And it's the Spirit here that is indwelling and abiding in us. is that that weird? Have you ever tried to explain to your non-Christian friends, like, so we believe that God lives inside of us. Right? How's that go over? You know, you ever talk to somebody from like an Asian culture or another, you know? Yeah, God's inside of me. (laughs) It's a pretty crazy thought. It's, It's consistent with historical Orthodox Christianity, but it's a radical idea. That's what he says. That's what he says. God's seed abides in him. We're born of God. That seed, there's some debate about what the seed is, but... Seems like, from the context, it's referring to this Holy Spirit that is embedded in us, that is indwelt in us, and the Gnostics um, would teach um, that you could actually become divine. You could become your own god, sort of like Mormonism teaches that in some ways. You could you can grow into through your through your character, or through your knowledge. You could you could infuse it. They use the language of being fertilized by the divine seed. And so John takes the language of the seed, I think, and says, Yeah, we know something about the seed. We've been born of the Holy Spirit. We've been born of that seed. It's actually where the adoption analogy falls short because it's not that we're on the outside and we get brought into the family. It's actually from the inside we get born of God. We get the, the, our genetic, our, our DNA is, 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 is changed. We get the genetic code of God. We get the Holy Spirit living in us. Empowering us, motivating us, changing us to be what we're called to be. Born of God. What's the purpose of being born of God? The purpose of the Father's love, of the Son's accomplishment, is that we would not continue sinning. He cannot continue sin and be born of God, is what it says. We can't be righteous be the righteous of the righteous one and be bo- and continue sinning. We're born of him, like father, like son. That's who he is. That's who we are. We can't do it. Um, you know, our, our, our we'll finish here. Um you know, our cultural moment's pretty crazy. Like it's it's a weird world. Everything's sort of changed and different. And so, like, what does it mean to be a Christian in this moment? Um, maybe you're asking yourself that, I think I'm asking, we should all be asking ourselves that. And some of us are trying to figure out the next day, you know, our kids are going to go to school, are we going to, can we have to wear masks, is this this restaurant open, whatever. Um, But one of the things it certainly means, it may mean many things, but it means that we're called to live a life of holiness and purity. We're, We're called to care about right doctrine, hopefully we do here. We're called to talk about mission, hopefully we talk about that a lot here. But we're also called to be people that say, you know what? I'm going to pursue obedience, not because it's, it's a keeping the law. I'm going to obey because of what Christ has done, because of what the Father has done, because the Spirit is inside of me yearning and calling us to obey. We'll finish with verse 28. Uh, I skipped over it, but it's kind of a summary verse. kind of chapter 2, uh, verse 28, the first verse of this text. And now, little children, John tells us again, little children, abide in him. This is what I want. Remain in him. Abide in him. So that when he appears and he's come once and he's going to come again, we may have confidence. We may be ready. Not perfect, but we may be ready and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. He's come once to take away sin, he's coming again to make it complete. Let's be ready. And the truth is there is no shame for us in Christ. Hebrews 12 tells us the the one that has known shame is not us, but it's Jesus, right? It says he endured the cross, what? Scorning its shame. It was shame-filled. All of our worst moments, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the things we want no one else to ever know about us or hear about us, the things we only thought to ourselves, Jesus was publicly displayed naked, beaten in full shame and array of sin our sin. He took shame that when he comes right now, we should be like Adam and Eve cowering, but we can be confident. We can stand because he has taken our shame. Because the Father has lavished his love. Because Jesus has come to do the very thing he said he would do, take away sin destroy the evil one, and then he gave us himself inside of us by his spirit. Does it get any better? Like, you can't make this stuff up, right? This is amazing. May we be a church that pursues the holiness of God, not not out of duty, though duty is right. He is the Lord, Um, but out of uh, the overwhelming goodness that he has for us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, your